This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In the 1950s, the exclusion of women and black and Latino men from higher-paying jobs was so universal that it seemed normal to most Americans. Today, diversity in the workforce is a point of pride. In Freedom is Not Enough, the opening of the American workplace, Nancy McLean shows how African-American and later Mexican-American civil rights and activists and feminists concluded that freedom alone would not suffice and that access to jobs at all levels is a requisite for full citizenship. McLean is Professor of History and African American Studies and Chair of the History Department at Northwestern University. Nancy McLean, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thank you for having me. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, and you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for for, uh, coming on. Sure. What's it it like at Northwestern today? Do you have uh, sunny days or... Oh, we have, yes. It's spring, and it's <laughs> yeah. actually quite beautiful. Yeah, that's, low that's, 70s. That's good to hear. Spring in the air. Yeah. All righty. Waiting no. for the end. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's the calm before the storm. Huh? Yeah. yeah. So in your in your book, uh, Freedom is Not Enough, what, what inspired you? What was the, the, the point where you said, I've got to write this book? Was it Or was it just something that, that built over time for you? You know, these issues had been in the back of my mind for years, in part because I lived through this transformation and I was involved in, in, in some of these, in making some of these changes at the micro level in, in the jobs that I held uh, as a young person. But what really prompted me to work on the book was uh, students cr- coming to my office and trying to find out where affirmative action policies had come from. This was in the early 1990s, and conservative-funded newspapers on campuses around the country were really attacking affirmative action policies in earnest. And some of the students on my campus at Northwestern were kind of shocked by these attacks and, uh, you know, were uncomfortable with them, but they really didn't know much about where the policies came from. And it was funny, you know, I teach 20th century American history, and I thought, well, you know, I'll just go find the literature. But as I went out there, I found out that there was this really sort of dry policy literature about these things and legal studies, but there was no social history, you know, nothing that's sort of vibrant and has the human dimension of how these policies came into being. And so then I started digging around in the archives and finding out that there was this incredibly rich story of these grassroots efforts around the country, and so that's pretty much when I resolved to write the book. Uh, Now, you you said that uh, you worked on a small level on this uh, problem early on. Where was that? Well, just, you know, I, I actually, I mean, you know, totally, you know, the very micro level. I mean, okay. when I was, you know, in high school and going through college, you know, I had jobs in all these classic kind of women's positions, you know, uh-huh. clerical worker, secretary, babysitting, housekeeping, you know, all those kinds of jobs that were the only jobs, actually, that uh, that women could get in those years and that young women could get. And, you know, I was um, in those jobs, particularly in the early 1970s, which is actually kind of the peak of my story. And, you know, I remember you know, um, being faced with things like sexual harassment, you know, and having to uh, argue with employers about what was basic fairness and why women, you know, on the the waitress staff that I was part of shouldn't have to wear leotards, um, you know, in order to attract customers. I mean, it was just all that kind of little stuff. So when I began to see this story in the archives and realize how big it was nationally, it really had a kind of resonance for me because I felt like I'd been there and that I, you know, without even realizing it was 
affected by what was going on elsewhere and what was going on in the culture that gave me the confidence as a young person um, to work with other women in my jobs to challenge these things. So I feel like, you know, there's a real connection there between lived experience and what was going on in the wider history. Uh, Go ahead, Mike. Well, I'm just going to say you said something earlier that reminded me of something that that I I see as a real um, impediment to progress, and that is that there's an assumption on the part of people of my generation that the, all the battles have been won and, and that they're won forever. But what we fail to understand is that, and I'm talking about civil rights and, mm-hmm. and the rest of it, that there, is, that there is a constant attack on people who are trying to move social progress forward. And that if, if there is a period of retrenchment, and I think that's what we're in now, and you really need to reinvent these stories over and I'm not reinvent them, but you need to retell these stories in order to maintain this sort of social movement that, that I think you're talking about. Do you, do you, do you see that as a Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I think at no time more than times like the present, which are disorienting and where, you know, some of the momentum has slipped, do, you know, at, at, at no time do we need to look back to the past as much as times like now, because, mm-hmm. you know, as... You know, we're faced with a changing landscape. There's globalization. There's, you know, a fundamentally changing labor market. There's lots of things going on. There's conservatives in power. Um, and as, as we try to figure out kind of how to get our bearings in a time like this, I think it's just so helpful to go back to history and to get the long view and to see how other people in similarly difficult circumstances figured out a way forward in their own time. And that's exactly what happened in the 1950s with the civil rights movement, you know, which had suffered a big setback uh, in the McCarthy years and was trying to find a way forward. And so, yes, absolutely, in telling this story, I'm really hoping to um, enable people to, to think about where we are in a different way, to see, of course, how much remains to be done, but also to be inspired to, t- to take on that challenge and that work by seeing how much was accomplished by people who came before us. Now, you had said that you had students coming in to talk to you about uh, some of the affirmative action programs in this. Did you find a sense of complacency or contempt or uh, regarding uh, the questions that they were asking you uh, about the, these uh, these programs and the, the progress that had been made? Or did you sense that they understand the urgency to, to maintain this kind of social movement? I think it's a really mixed picture because young people at this point are about as polarized as adults are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, there are some young people who are just you know, and very inspiring to me, who are, you know, thoughtful and reflective and fair-minded and really um, much more aware of how their own experiences have shaped their perspective than people were when I was growing up. You know, I think when I was growing up, people took their own points of view much more for granted as universal. And so I see a real change that's very positive mm-hmm. among young people, at least some young people now. And also I think young people are far more um, sort of progressive and fair-minded than adults on some issues like lesbian and gay rights. You know, you see a really dramatic generational change there. Um, so the, even some conservatives are more um, 
supportive of, of young conservatives are, are more supportive of, of lesbian and gay rights than, than adults. But there are some students who um, have really been egged on by these adult conservatives mm-hmm. and by the organizations that they fund and the training camps they sponsor and all of that. And so some of them behave in really ugly ways. I mean, on my own campus, for example, um, they held a uh, affirmative action bake sale a few years ago and sold cookies for different prices to African-American and Latino kids and to uh, uh, Asian-Americans and Jewish and white, you know, basically implying that some students were, were um, you know, getting shortchanged by school policies and others were, were being unfairly benefited. And, I mean, it was just such an ugly thing. I had a black student come into my office with just tears in her eyes saying, why are they so hateful, you know? How can they make these assumptions? They don't know anything about me. You know, where is this coming from? So, so I do think that, um, you know, campuses are not at all immune from what's going on in the rest of our public life now, and, and there's been some pretty aggressive um, attacks on these policies from, from the right, and, and that's having an influence um, in camp- on campuses as well. Well, in many ways, our, our, our campuses are sort of social laboratories, and it, it's, it's not surprising to hear that there's a big push on the part of the social conservatives <clears throat> to, uh, to enforce a, their point of view. I want to I talk first uh, about the, the importance of the social movements of this country and how they translate now that we're a more global economy, a more global world, and how important it is for us to be able to take these, these movements and to trans, translate them into other cultures around the world. And then I want to get into the book itself. And so is, are we going to be able to do that? Are we going to be able to transfer uh, or translate our social movements around the world, uh, knowing that our government has essentially been an impediment to us doing that around the world? Is that going to happen despite them? Yeah, it's a real challenge for the reasons that you just uh, outlined. But on the other hand, um, yes, I think I think people in other parts of the world have looked to the United States actually for uh, leadership on this issue. For example, last summer when uh, there were the riots in uh, immigrant communities in France, uh, many people in France were starting to say, gee, you know, maybe we should be paying more attention to the American example and looking at policies like affirmative action, which have enabled, you know, if not Still enough, certainly a significant number of African Americans, Latinos, you know, women of all groups, to have a seat at the table of power and to have influence over public life in a way that they didn't before, and that's really healthy for the whole society for everyone to feel uh, included and not alienated in that way. And so, you know, I think that's one case where um, others have looked to Americans and looked to these policies that are criticized from some quarters now as being real successes. So I think. Um, this is a story that really does speak to the experience of people in other places who have similar issues of, you know, groups who have been excluded from full belonging. Uh, and um, so I think it is a powerful story that really does speak across national lines. But but I think some of the, the transfer of the knowledge and experience and legacy of these struggles is being done by private actors mm-hmm. much more than by the government because mm-hmm. of the nature of our government yeah. right now. But, you know, it's very interesting. American business now celebrates 
rights diversity, you know, and Fortune magazine, the business magazine, which was opposed to the Civil Rights Act, you know, when it was passed, now ranks diversity leaders among the other kinds of rankings that they do. So I think, interestingly, many businesses and institutions have come to see that diversity is a real asset to them. It's really, um, in fact, vital for them to uh, operate in this complex, you know, uh, interwoven global world that we're faced with now. And so, you know, you see some leadership from those quarters, and you also see a great deal of leadership from uh, non-governmental organizations that are operating internationally, you know, where feminists and uh, groups of people of color are sharing lessons and experiences across national boundaries. I want to remind our listeners that we're speaking with Nancy McLean, and she's the author of Freedom is Not Enough, The Opening of the American Workplace. And let's go into that. Why is freedom not enough for the American workplace? The phrase freedom is not enough actually comes from a speech that uh, – President, then-President Lyndon Johnson gave at Howard University in 1965, and to my mind, it was one of the most significant speeches in American history. Here you had a politician who had you know, had his base in Texas, who had been raised by, uh, you know, Dixiecrat leaders who, uh, you know, had all of that baggage, but who was so kind of moved and instructed by the civil rights movement that he basically communicated the message of that movement and the metaphors of Martin Luther King to the nation in this speech when he said, freedom is not enough. And he said, you know, you don't wipe away the scars of centuries by saying, now you're free. Uh, so his whole emphasis was on how freedom had to be made real, and people needed to be uh, provided what they needed to have the opportunity to succeed, you know, not just to be told that now they could compete, but to actually get the training, the access to schooling, the, um, you know, the support in order to be able to succeed at the highest levels. And that really established a kind of promissory note uh, for African Americans and then later for other groups that, you know, we're still trying to uh, get full delivery on, you could say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what what I like about your book too is that it's it's more of a, a people's history. Uh, you, you do bring it down to, to individual cases instead of instead of all the legislation that was involved, but the the small acts of courage that 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 uh, well that brought about this transformation in our country. Can you talk a little bit about Warless Jackson? Yeah, the, Warless Jackson is uh, a man whose story opens uh, Freedom is Not Enough, and I I chose to open the book with it because it, I was really haunted by it, and it really shaped the way that I thought about this whole story. Jackson was a veteran of the Korean War. He was the uh, NAACP's treasurer in Natchez, Mississippi, and he was a factory uh, worker and a husband and father of five children, and as part of the local civil rights movement, uh, he and others tried to open up better jobs to African Americans, and when he moved in to a skilled job in the local rubber plant where he'd worked for, for many years, uh, it was considered a white man's job by others then, and he was murdered for uh, being promoted to that job. A bomb was placed in his truck that, um, just a horrible, uh, horrible story, but but I, I open with that story first to remind us of what an extraordinary struggle this was and how deep the commitment was on the part of African Americans to get better jobs and how fierce the resistance of some whites was to that that transformation. But, but um, his story really shows how getting access to good jobs and economic security was a fundamental part of the civil rights movement. And it's something that's been sort of forgotten about for various reasons over the years since. But it was, you know, 
really part of kind of the nerve center of that movement and then later of the women's movement and the Mexican-American movement as well. So, um, so I used his story, like, as you said, you know, the stories of lots of other ordinary people who really are more than anyone else responsible for the fact that we enjoy such equality and inclusion as we do today. So many people, uh, well, they weren't born before the Civil Rights Act today, they have they have no recollection of what the country was like, and I I think it's it seems like very ancient history to talk about fifty sixty years ago to them, and yet that's that's not very much time at all. Can you can you talk a little bit about? <laughs> pre-Civil Rights Act yes, America? Yes, absolutely. And I, in fact, devoted the first chapter of Freedom is Not Enough to kind of recreating this world that prevailed in the mid-1950s, because I think people have uh, forgotten it or repressed it, perhaps. Or, or they've romanticized uh, it. To, you know, either, one, either, either forgotten it or they've romanticized the, the, the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, but it was just extraordinary. I mean, exclusion was just so absolutely taken for granted that it was hardly questioned at all in the mainstream. So you had, for example, just about every newspaper in the country organized its help wanted ads according to race and sex, and sometimes even specified the marital status of the workers that they wanted or the ethnicity of them. You had, uh, uh, in parts of the South, uh, laws uh, denying African Americans the right to work as operatives in, fact, in uh, factory jobs like the, the textile industry. Black women could only get jobs in uh, textiles, which was the main manufacturing industry in the South. They could only get jobs cleaning toilets for white workers. I mean, there was just no possibility of anything else. White employers just wouldn't even consider African Americans for sales jobs, much less for supervisory jobs. There was just this assumption that they couldn't possibly do that, and customers wouldn't accept it, and no one would, you know, submit to being uh, uh, bossed by by a black person. I mean, it was just so so profoundly deep, and there, you know, all of these different, you know, women could be um, fired for being pregnant. Um, sexual harassment as a concept didn't even exist. I mean, that phrase didn't exist. Women just had to know that they might be hit on by their bosses um, as part of the price of, of retaining their job. So, I mean, there was just so much discrimination that was so rife, but interestingly, for most of it, I mean, there weren't even the words to describe it. It was so ingrained in the culture. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think it's really helpful for us to revisit that, because that's within the lifetime of certainly my parents and grandparents, um, and, you know, maybe many of your other listeners as well. So it's really not that far away. Um, and the fact that that culture is no longer with us is due to the efforts of people like Wallace Jackson, you know, and tens of thousands of others, many of whose stories I, I tell in, in the book. Uh, we're speaking with Nancy McLean. Her book is Freedom is Not Enough. And if you're going to... Uh say, compare it today with then, or or give us a, a, a temperature of where we stand right now. Do you think we had a, a great rise in, in, uh, in freedom and, and we're starting to slip back? Do you think we're, we're just progressing forward and hitting a little rough spot? Or what's, what is happening today, do you think? Well, uh, I think that there has been really significant change in the culture, uh, but I think that... Uh, Power and policy um, have kind of stalled, you know, the changes there have really stalled. And what you saw, um, 
you know, in the late 1960s and the early 1970s, you know, particularly in the Johnson years, was, you know, government actually taking this on seriously as a problem and obligation and something that would make the whole country better. And so from 1965 to 1975, African Americans in the South made more economic progress than they did at any time before that in American history or any time since that. In the 1970s, sex discrimination had the first notable decline in a century in the U.S. So there was really dramatic progress in those first 10 years after the Civil Rights Act. Um, But the other part of the story that I also tell in Freedom is Not Enough is about the rise of the conservative movement, which actually began in the same year as the Montgomery bus boycott when William F. Buckley launched the National Review magazine. And that conservative movement from the very beginning fought every single measure that would have enabled real inclusion, whether it was uh, allying with the um, massive resistance to Brown versus Board of Education, whether it was fighting the Civil Rights Act, whether it was attacking affirmative action policies, you know, fighting um, uh, housing desegregation. In all of those ways, the right consistently blocked these efforts at equality and inclusion. And I really don't think that we can understand the outcome unless we turn much more of a spotlight on that history of the role of conservatives in stalling what would have been, to my mind, you know, just a tremendously important and beneficial transformation of America. We we were fortunate enough to have on the program last week uh, Barbara Robles, and she wrote, she co-authored a book uh, called The Color of Wealth, and it oh, sort yeah. of it dovetails with what you're talking about here in the sense that part of what the government policies were intended to do during that period of time was to facilitate uh, a, the uh, the accumulation of wealth on the part of the the uh, uh, minorities' families in order to fis- get them into better educational, uh, you know, better schools and better jobs, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, the, at the time, the government was a facilitator, and now it seems to be an impediment, and that's the big difference to me. I think that's a, a really um, perfect characterization, yeah, from facilitator to, to impediment. That's, that's exactly uh, what's happened, and uh, I think, yes, my story really does dovetail with that, the book, um, The Color of Wealth, which is a wonderful book that really reminds us of how much government policies benefited white Americans over the years and hurt African Americans so that advantages snowballed on the one side and disadvantages on the other. So all those great social policies that came out of the New Deal, you know, the the Wagner Act that allowed workers to organize or the Social Security Act or later the GI Bill, you know, all of those things were wonderful and enabled many people to rise to the middle class. But because uh, Southern, uh, you know, essentially Dixiecrats in Congress had so much power, they were able to ensure that that legislation didn't benefit African Americans in the same way. And so that's one of the things that the civil rights movement really, um, uh, you know, pushed to the forefront. And King in 1963, um, in Why We Can't Wait, said exactly that. You know, this country has been doing something special against the Negro for, you know, 300 years, he said. You know, how, how could we possibly write the equation unless we start doing something special for uh, African Americans now? And so that that basic understanding was also what was driving uh, the Johnson administration in its you know um, efforts that uh, used this idea of freedom is not enough to try to open up. Well, we're running short on time, um, and I want to thank you very much. I'm going to throw out one more radical idea, and I, okay. and, I, and that is that I think we need to be de- in the process of developing now 
a new New Deal because I think we're heading in the direction where at some point the disparity between the rich and the poor is going to be so dramatic that and when some sort of economic downturn, recession occurs, the people in this country will have virtually no safety net. We're going to be in a situation not dissimilar to what happened in the in the 30s and early 40s. So I, I think we need to be about the business of form, putting together something that is akin to a new New Deal. I so agree with you on that. And in fact, uh, you know, what I end the book with is a kind of agreement with those who are now saying that economic justice is the civil rights issue of our yeah. time, yeah. because so many, you know, people of color and women are among the poor. And so these struggles to make work pay, whether living wage campaigns or unionization or all of those things, are really essential to, as you say, bring us a new New Deal. Because if we don't have that, we're going to have a lot of sadness and a lot of trouble and a lot of strife before us. We need to be proactive and ready for something as opposed to reactive when it happens. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Nancy McLean. Uh, The book is Freedom is Not Enough, The Opening of the American Workplace. Uh, Thanks for being on Weekly Signals. Thanks for having me, Mike. Bye-bye. Take care. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals. Weekly Signals.